Good day, everybody. This is Pietrus Potgieter from the Institute for Technology and Network Economics, and I'm chatting as usual today with my co-founder, Bronwyn Howell, in our podcast, Call and Chain. Um, we've been a bit irregular over the past year or two, um, and we're chatting today about content and censorship. So our previous podcast started um, discussing this, and it was mainly about editing and censoring on social media, where we discussed uh, the controversies uh, from about a year ago where social media companies were banning certain actors from their platforms. Um, We're recording this on 3 March 2022, um, a lot of things have happened. There is a war raging in Ukraine, uh, which has impacted quite a lot of things. And um, some things have been happening on the side as well. So uh, here in South Africa, Bronwyn, um, Cyril Ramaphosa signed into uh, effect the Internet Censorship Bill on 1 March, I think. He's been sitting on it for months or years, I don't remember. So this is a bill uh, in South Africa which uh, has quite significant consequences. It's, of course, dressed up um, with all kinds of protection uh, of minors and the usual uh, scary things. Um, but then, very interestingly, it empowers the Film and Publication Board, the old censorship board, uh, to hear complaints about content on all kinds of bases, including hate speech and incitement to violence, etc. So right now in South Africa, um, anybody can go to the Film and Publication Board and complain about anything that anybody put up anywhere on the Internet. Um, and the Film and Publication Board... Um, will be able to adjudicate that. So I don't even remember what the legal status of the Film and Publication Board is. It's kind of a joke, but at the same time, um, Netflix have done a deal in South Africa where they have said that they will accept graciously training by the Film and Publication Board into the film publication uh, classification system in South Africa, so the usual categories, um, and uh, they will henceforth apply those categories to Netflix content. So as far as I know, Netflix and some of the other streaming video providers have just been applying their own, own ratings systems up to that point. So uh, that is the background. Uh, Bronwyn, uh, what strikes you as interesting in this area at the moment? Well, I think in an environment where everyone is, in fact, a broadcaster and any use of the online distribution, social networks or any other sort of distribution network like YouTube potentially turns everyone into a broadcaster, it actually begs the question about who should be responsible for what is put up and, in fact, determining what, in fact, is the definition of what is acceptable or unacceptable content. Because so much of self-publication or self-broadcasting is never intended to be distributed to the whole population. It's usually targeted for a small group of people who are a, a small social group or people of like interest or concerns. 
where in fact there might be very different standards of acceptance of what is, is viewable within that audience. The fact that it could potentially be seen by someone else is, is a, a risk, but is it one that warrants such a heavy-handed approach to require everything to be viewed or censored or classified before it's put out there? Yes, that's a very good question. I think here in South Africa there is an exemption for some kind of broadcasting from being classified by the Film and Publication Board. And, of course, um, it will always be the case that you can pretty much download what you want from torrent sites or via VPN access uh, foreign services. So just to uh, perhaps touch on that uh, for a start, um, I saw yesterday that uh, Ukrainian-Russian language television channel on YouTube had a sign-up saying that its content is barred from the territory of the Russian Federation, but uh, that people should access it on social media or via VPN. And, of course, in the case of YouTube, for example, uh, if you use encrypted traffic, um, Nobody can really tell what videos you are viewing on YouTube. So somebody intercepting the traffic will only see that you are getting traffic from YouTube and not which videos. So, for example, were the South African authorities to uh, ban certain content on YouTube, um, they won't be able to monitor all the content that YouTube sends. They'll just have to try and access it themselves from South Africa. And in the spirit of uh, Volkswagen diesel car testing, if the uh, YouTube authorities were able to simply uh, exclude suspicious people from uh, testing it, there's really no way of telling whether that content is coming into the country. And I think that is why this Russian-language uh, Ukrainian channel uh, is continuing to broadcast on YouTube, and I don't think that Russia can stop it without stopping the YouTube. Yes, because I think that comes down to the fact that when you're trying to shut out entire streams of material like that, it really actually requires the ISPs to get into the act because they are the ones who are capable of actually blocking all traffic from a given source. Now, I understand that this is what occurred in New Zealand in the 2019 mosque shootings, where, in fact, it was no, there was no need for any censorship action to happen because the ISPs unilaterally and amongst themselves decided that the simplest way to do that was to just shut down the, uh, the Facebook feed, that was the Facebook live feed that was coming through, and then they refused to handle that onwards. And it was their action at the ISP level shutting out entire streams from given addresses that allowed that to be blocked. So it now moves the responsibility for the censorship. If it's going to be censorship of an entire channel like that, it takes the responsibility from the people creating the content and the people hosting the content and brings in a third player into this act as well because now the ISPs become responsible for blocking content streams. And that then becomes quite a messy and complicated route of, uh, route of trying to involve people in the act of, of deciding what is to be censored, when it is to be censored, and how it is to be censored, and how to stop it moving through. Correct. So um, 
I think the fact that everything is on YouTube or so much is on YouTube and there's basically this one dominant platform actually makes it more difficult to censor content because you basically have to close down the whole YouTube or ask YouTube to please do it for you. Yes, and and now, again, that becomes quite tricky because presumably different countries will apply different standards and want different levels of censorship. So I imagine at the moment YouTube would possibly have a request from Russia to shut down specific Ukrainian content and from the Ukrainians to shut down specific Russian content. And if we now imagine that we can put in all of the other potential Policies who might have a problem with someone else's distribution of content, we can start seeing now that in fact these international platforms that's, that have uh, they may be located in one zone then are perhaps expected to take on responsibilities over and above what they could possibly be be expected to do legally because of that. It's quite it's one matter entirely to instruct geographically located ISPs to act in a particular way. But it would be impossible for any one government to instruct an international company to behave in a specific way when it doesn't, in fact, necessarily have a physical location in those territories where it's been instructed to act. Yes. So um, I understand that the European Union has called for Russian media, RT, formerly Russian Today, and uh, Sputnik to be blocked in the European Union. Uh, now, you can fairly easily uh, block the websites, uh, but I just checked. Uh, I get the Russia Today website without any problem, and I'm pretty sure that I get it via Europe. So, um, so European uh, Internet exchanges are probably sending Russia Today to South Africa, Saudi Arabia, India, wherever it wants to go. Um, but I don't understand how they would do that, yet block the uh, Russia Today content in the European Union. Um, I mean, one way to do it, a very simple way to do it, is for the ISPs, and this is another long and interesting story, if the ISPs just manipulate their name servers, and this is getting a bit technical, but if you connect it to an ISP, uh, in general, they run a name server, uh, which uh, translates an address like rt.com into a, uh, an IP address and uh, connects you to the site. And uh, that is very easy to control. Of course, you are under no obligation to use the name server of your service provider. So there are public name servers that you can use. But that would be a very easy way to make these sites inaccessible for the ISPs in Europe to uh, manipulate the name servers that they run. Um, and that would mean no problem for the Internet exchanges who can just pass on the Russia Today content to whoever they want in the rest of the world. Or it might also be just a selective caching um, where predominantly servers in a location that is, say, outside the European Union where there's no particular problem specifically of having that Ukrainian or Russian content like South Africa or New Zealand, it might be okay for the YouTube cache or the whatever cache in that part of the world to still have the content, but it might have been taken out of the caches that have been used to supply Europe. Yes, so I'm, I'm pretty sure that they won't block the Russia today. I, I will check just now, 
But some of the social media platforms have definitely blocked uh, Russian uh, media channels. Uh, Twitter, I think, has blocked Russia today. And this is very much in the spirit of what happened a year ago or so in the United States, uh, where the uh, social media companies themselves voluntarily decided to suspend the activity of uh, certain players. And uh, that I see as absolutely the same. Um, there are more serious consequences uh, which we will get to. Um, but uh, any other thoughts on that? Well, I think, first of all, I, I think a deeper question that underpins all of this is actually asking the reason why these streams are being blocked. Now, there's two valid reasons that could come to mind. One of them could be censorship, that in fact the message that maybe comes from that area is just not wanted to be seen in, in a certain part of the world. So that censorship argument would see some screens shut down. So that might explain why, for example, Russia doesn't want to see Ukrainian content distributed in its territory. But on the other hand, there might also be the question of sanctions, that in fact a country might be using the, the taking down of all content coming from a given location as part of the sanctions that are being, uh, being, being shafted home at the moment against Russia. And that in itself leads to a different reason and potentially other different tactics that could be used. So I understand that, for example, Google has demonetized some of the Russian media channels. That is that they don't get ads and they've also uh, stripped them of the Google AdWords or whatever Google advertising platform. That is, of course, one way to do it. And these platforms have long been doing this with uh, material that they regard as objectionable, for example, the virus, which we'd better not name because it might trigger some uh, 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 content-checking uh, bot somewhere. Um, so they have been doing that, and, and that is simply in terms of the flexible so-called uh, community standards guidelines, and uh, we've discussed that before. Uh, that's quite an interesting topic in and of itself. But it, it, does, it does also show now how these same technical tools can be used for two different purposes. And I think it warrants consideration as to what the justifications are in each instance. Because obviously there might be some overlap between them. But if one thinks about blocking content because it's politically uncomfortable to see it, might be useful from a central purpose, but blocking it, thereby preventing information that needs to be obtained to get a true picture of what's going on is yet another problem. I mean, we've seen this for a long time, even with broadcast television, where, where there's been selective, um, selective sharing of particular information or particular picture, pictures that suit a particular agenda. So, for example, as we've seen in New Zealand recently with our um, occupation of the Parliament grounds, the what was displayed on the media in terms of the, the violence and the unpleasant social activities that were happening there, what was distributed and shown selectively by the broadcast media was a vastly different selection from what was seen on media that was collected and broadcast on YouTube. 
and other such and Facebook and other such such platforms from people who were actually there full time in the middle of it recording it. And we get those sorts of issues. We've always had this problem of selective um, crafting of the message via the content of the video itself. But when we now also get into this as a potential war of taking uh, taking down content that might be crafted in a different way to show a different message leads to real issues about whether we can actually believe what we see of anything that appears from any of these platforms unless we in fact know the bona fides of the people who are actually distributing the video in the first place. Indeed. So um, I want to get back to the topic of legality in a second, but uh, one of the sites that I monitor in this is Pravda, the original Russian one, not the Ukrainian spin-off. And as over the past um, almost 100 years, um, what Pravda doesn't say carries almost as much information, I think, as what it does. So when Pravda is silent, that is very important information. And Absolutely. I just see this morning that Pravda have spoken out, uh, have published a declaration by a representative of the Russian Ministry of Defense about the number of Russian servicemen killed uh, during the invasion, uh, which I would say the fact that they are saying anything at all about it is more meaningful than the actual number. Yes, and this also gets to the point where the, the declaration of a policy and some transparency over when or when not censorship activities have been undertaken is also quite important to know too, to be able to put that into the mix for understanding the veracity of what's been said. Yes, so uh, I mean I would firmly object that although I know that Pravda is full of lies um, I would object to any attempt to censor my access to it because those lies are informative for me. Absolutely, and and that's where, in fact, allowing a full panoply and, and using the takedown or the censoring of material as a last resort, only to be done under exceptional circumstances rather than a routine activity to be done at any or all times, now is quite an important consideration. In, in, a, in, an, open, in, in an open and transparent environment, we want to see the warts, because otherwise we don't know what a wart is. Correct. So I don't know what the legal situation is in Russia, but I imagine that in Russia there is a quite uh, well-defined um, administrative structure for censoring uh, content. So I can understand that it's completely legal in Russia to ban a Ukrainian channel, and it's done by the right channels. But um, I'm not sure uh, what legal authority the European Union has to ban uh, websites. Uh, that strikes me as uh, possibly unusual. I mean, the European Union is not in a declared state of war. So do you think that the European Union, under normal circumstances, can just ban certain websites? Well, actually, it begs the question as to whether they're running a truly open Internet standard if they're actually going to be selectively not transmitting content that someone wants to get through. And as far as I know, the European Union has network neutrality, 
which means that the refusal to deliver Russia today is just a violation of that so-called Internet freedom. It would appear to be be some violation at that level, absolutely. Indeed. So network neutrality, when it suits you, i.e. in the case of the European Union, when you you want to act in favor or against, I don't even recall, uh, American companies, but otherwise not. But, you know, this is, this is where the pornography test comes in. You know, the, the, as we always said, net, network neutrality was, was an aspirational standard because clearly there were carve-outs like pornography distributed to children that had to be stopped. And there's the slippery slope argument. Once you've taken out pornography, you've opened up the option to take out absolutely anything selectively on the way through. Yes. So... Um and that's where, to, to the extent is there's a willing transmitter and a willing receiver, and that's entered into knowingly, then in a truly open internet rather than the neutral internet, then in fact the connection should be allowed to be made, in my view, and that it should be stopped only under extreme circumstances. And that the the reason for the stopping needs to be made clear. Is it, in fact, censorship because we're not allowed to see what's being shown? Or is it sanctions because we want to punish those people, for, for the people who are doing the transmitting? So what about, what about niche ISPs and network neutrality? We are digressing a bit. But I'm just wondering, suppose you wanted, and I'm sure that uh, this might exist in some countries, um, an orthodox uh, Judaic uh, internet service provider that censors certain content for you or even provides only certain content, a limited subset of content, and is switched off on the Sabbath. So network neutrality would clearly make it impossible to provide such a service. I would hazard a guess to say that it wouldn't be an offence if, in fact, the end consumer requested that service to be provided. Okay. So if an, if an orthodox Jew requested that ISP not to provide that content and that ISP catered for that audience by just not transmitting that content, then I think that would get around the net neutrality arguments because it's a service to a sub-community. But if they wanted to then put themselves out as a common carrier serving all comers on all purposes, that's where I think the distinction goes, you know, goes a bit broader. Um, of course, it, it's, it shows the argument there for actually having a wide variety of different providers who are able to cater for those different communities. But the question is whether it, it should actually be at the ISP level doing that or whether there's some sort of other application interface into the web that could be doing that service and whether those people need to actually be running the ISP services as a telco or whether they can be a particular application that sits on a given public carrier's network to provide that service as a moot point. Indeed. So to move on to a slightly different topic, um, I read the headline this morning in a news feed and I haven't been able to find the article since. So um, Apple has suspended some of the Russian media outlets in its app store, um, I think everywhere in the world. And I read that uh, some Ukrainian minister had appealed to uh, Apple CEO personally 
to block the ice store for all citizens of Russia. This is how I recall it. So uh, not allow any citizens of Russia to use the ice store. Okay, so that's uh, that would be a pretty invasive step and goes uh, far beyond what any of the big tech companies have done so far. Um, I doubt very much that Apple would do it, but it definitely broaches the idea. And it even occurred to me that conceivably Apple could shut down all iPhones in Russia. I, I'm, I'm, I'm presuming that this is possible. Well, that's assuming iPhones are supported by the Russian networks. Um, but, but yes, it does raise an interesting point because I can see why Apple wanting to block the hosting of content provided by Russian content providers would fit neatly in the world of sanctions that are being provided against a lot of Russian providers of all sorts of exports. But it does seem to be flipping the coin the other way around if one is actually preventing Russian citizens as consumers to have access to those things. Because ultimately, I guess, there's a humanitarian argument in there as to who is being harmed by that activity. No, no, indeed. But Apple has stopped selling iPhones in Russia. That was in the news a few days ago. So Apple is no longer selling iPhones in Russia but um, the idea that the operator of a platform, because Apple is, of course, not only a seller of phones, but also an operator of the platform, can um, deactivate this very critical device remotely is quite an interesting thought. And my guess is that Apple can do it, but uh, Google is not able to deactivate the Android phones, but most of the Android phones also have some layer from the manufacturer running on top of Android. So um, it occurred to me that I'm not sure whether my phone can be remotely switched off by uh, either the manufacturer of the phone who runs the operating system or by Google. I hope not, but it's not clear to me at all. Well, I guess there's always some sort of question in there as to how far the the extent of the the extent of the platform the platform creators have got software in there. It is my understanding that there is that capacity in there to shut down the phones, and one could see why that would be um, while Apple might protest against the the instruction to use it by a government the potential for Apple as a firm itself to make that choice for its customers directly is another matter altogether. And my understanding is that there is that capacity in Apple phones for them to be shut down if that was so desired. But I guess the, the quandary there for Apple is why they would want to do that for the phones themselves because if the signal is meant to be to the Russian government then would shutting down the phones be an appropriate way of dealing with that? And would there, in fact, be risks if the phones are shut down, given the extent to which phones have become embedded into our daily life and, in fact, survival in some cases in the Western world? I assume that similar sorts of things are happening in Russia. That, in fact, that might actually be a step too far to do that 
because of that potential harm that could be invoked. Yes. I mean, that's different. That shutting down the phone is a totally different matter than shutting down an application. That's the distinction, I think, between real harm that can be caused versus um, um, mental harm that can be caused by seeing something that might be a bit traumatic or not desirable. Yes. So um, it's it's very interesting, and um, I think that we are what we are seeing here is apart from the dreadful human suffering, uh, we are also really seeing uh, an information age war starting to to develop, and um, that's sad but also interesting at the same time. Absolutely, and of course it might be interesting to note, um, you know, given that in fact Google is so good at tracking the movement of Android phones, it might be interesting to see and compare the movement of Google phones in the Ukraine over these last few days just to see where in fact the Russian soldiers have gone and where the, where the patterns of movement are for different, different sorts of phones because I would imagine that um, the Russian soldiers, if they do have the phones, would have taken them with them because that's part of what one does. They are presumably using phones. I'm not sure whether the Ukrainian networks have uh, roaming for Russian phones. They might phones. not have roaming on them, but at least the GPS signals could be picked up on where, in fact, the phones had been, if there was the ability to track yeah, that. Yeah, if I were a Russian fo- soldier, I would make sure I have my own GPS, I can tell you. But um, the, so the situation yeah. is interesting. On the plus side, um, perhaps uh, in closing, uh, the telecoms networks have uh, reacted in a very supportive way. I think that the Ukrainian networks are allowing uh, calls and messaging even uh, for people who have run out of credit. And some uh, EU networks have said that phone calls to Ukraine are are free, they are not charging for them, um, so that's a oh, way... Zero rating. <laughs> violating zero rating yet again. <laughs> yes, something like that. Well, <laughs> so, violating zero rating rules, I should say. Yes, indeed, yes. indeed. Um, and I don't know what the censorship situation is, but I'm following some Russian dissident channels on uh, Telegram, those appear to be running uh, without any problem at all. And I think it's emphasised at this time to remember that the significant changes that came in East Germany came because of the ability of Radio Free Europe to transmit into that and and motivate and encourage and organise internal rebellion when the Berlin Wall was up and the Iron Curtain was down. So... I think we just have to have hope and faith that the signals will still somehow get through and that the right people looking for the right signals will in fact pick them up and use them as they themselves